Welcome to the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast. I'm your host, Nadia Dela Cruz, founder of the Wayne Dyer Wisdom Community on Facebook and angeltarot.org. My guest today is an author, speaker, coach, and reinvention architect. In 2014, he had a successful career, a beautiful wife, and was enjoying the finer things in life. He lost all of this after being arrested by the FBI for mail fraud. He faced his darkest demons in federal prison and ultimately used this incarceration as an opportunity for reinvention. He now offers private coaching, helping others to start over and create an extraordinary life. You may have seen his TED Talk titled, How I Learned My Greatest Worth in Federal Prison. Craig Stanlin, thank you so much for joining me today. Nadia, thank you so much for having me on. What an amazing, incredible introduction. I, I, hope, I hope I live up to it. <laughs> well, you have quite a story, so I'm excited to bring this out and let people hear um, more about what you've learned in your life, because um, so many times we get our greatest um, turning points from our darkest moments, and you're certainly uh, an example of that. Now, interestingly, you and I actually have a mutual friend who was my first guest on this podcast, Dr. Ken Harris. Um, why don't you tell us how you two met? So I think I'm so happy that you asked that question because Ken is the author of the book, Synchronicity, and Ken and I met through a synchronicity. And it was just, you, you know, and as Ken would say, you can't make this stuff up. He, uh, he and his wife and I both love the same beach in Connecticut. Neither of us live in Connecticut, but we travel to go to this beach because it's just, it has an energy to it. It's something really special about it. So I'm, I'm walking along very crowded day. Um, I wanted a place in the shade just because it was really hot. And I never go to this particular spot on the beach. And I go there and there's this one little tiny spot. And I just asked this couple, I said, may I sit here? And I said, absolutely. And it's Ken and his wife. And Ken just talks to everybody. So we just start, <laughs> he, we just start chatting. And he asked me, he says, you know, what do you do for a living? And I said, I work at a gym. And he goes, and, and he looked at me a little bit sideways and he goes, I'm sorry, something's just not adding up for me. You just don't really seem like the type to, to work at a gym. And I said, well, life threw me a curveball. He was very respectful. He said, I'm going to leave it at that. And I felt so comfortable with him. And at the time, I was still, I was still so consumed by shame by what I had done. But I felt so comfortable with Ken that I just I said, you know what? Here's my story. I was arrested by the FBI. I lost everything. And we just became friends from that point on. And, you know, I said to him, I said, boy, you know, you know who you would like, I think, I think you'd like Dr. Joe Dispenza. And he almost drops his phone and he looks at me and he goes, Judy, what's the name that I've been trying to come up with for the past day and a half? I've been trying to come up with that name. He goes, where, where did you come up with that name? I said, I was listening to Dr. Joe on my drive up to the beach today. And he's like, I've been trying to remember that name for days now. He goes, you just saved me. I was going crazy. I couldn't remember. And it was just, it was just one of those things. Yeah, he yeah. loves Joe Dispenza. I, I saw a picture of him, I think, in the audience at one of his talks. He's He's been, as far as I know, he's been to a few of them. And yeah. uh, I believe they're becoming friends. 
<laughs> Very cool. Well, it's not just you. Dr. Harris gets stories out of everybody. Like that's really what his book Synchronicity was about is all of these, mostly on vacation too. I think it's because he's like really relaxed. He's in the zone, right? And he starts up these conversations with people and they just have these amazing connections. And like, it's always like a friend of a friend or like, you know, somebody he knew from childhood. And so, yeah, it's fantastic. I, I remember that being his number one piece of advice is like, talk to everybody. <laughs> He, he really has been just a, a mentor to me in that regard, just his gregariousness and his openness and his willingness to talk to anybody. And the things that happen to him as a result of that is just evidence of the, the value of doing it. Yeah, just, it definitely. Just, yeah, speaking to people. You know, it opens doors and, and you learn so much that you wouldn't even know like what other people are going through. It's fascinating. So can you tell us what your life was like prior to the arrest? So I had, I really what a lot of people would consider the American dream. I owned four homes. I drove beautiful cars. I was married to this absolutely just incredible, amazing, funny, beautiful woman. Uh, I wore the nicest watches. I ate at the best restaurants. Um, you know, I was a, I had a, a great job working at this technology company as an enterprise sales executive, dealing with all the largest financial firms in the world, all the largest hedge funds in the world. You know, I mean, it was from the outside, it looked, it looked great and amazing. But I, while all that was going on, I had no sense of self worth. I never knew that I was enough. And that sense of, and they're, they're kind of two sides of the same coin, not feeling enough and not feeling worthy are, they're kissing cousins, if you will. And, yeah. you know, I just, all of that success, I didn't feel worthy of it. I didn't feel worthy of my beautiful wife. And, you know, I tried really hard to, to fill that gap with all those nice things. And it was just, it was, it was, always chasing the external to try to fill myself up. So while everything looked really good on the inside, it was just a tremendous amount of turmoil. And, and you know, it really, there was just a disparity in me, you know, between the, between the head and the heart. And it just, it really, it, it tore me in two. And that, that really, that need to buy those things, to, to have an identity, tied to those things. It grew so strong. And at the same time, the what I was selling was becoming commoditized. So the margins were shrinking. So my paychecks were shrinking. And it was, you know, this, this increased desire and the need to build up my identity and my sense of self-worth with decreasing paychecks. It led my mind to start looking at things differently. And I found an opportunity within our partner company's warranty policy, which I exploited for my financial gain, which led to my arrest. You know, I think you put into words what so many people experience of that always striving, but never feel like you're arriving, even though the external circumstances, everybody might look at you and go, wow, you have everything, like you made it, you did it, but you never really feel like you get there. There's not this satisfaction that comes from chasing after achievement and um you know having the title and having the the job and having the money um so it's very brave of you i think to tell that story and it's really it's heartbreaking but heartwarming too to me because i think that 
you're showing a side of humanity that not everybody talks about, but everybody feels, right? So many people, especially in our culture, the way we grow up, you know, you want to get that A when you're in school. You want to get that degree. You want to get into the best school. You want to you want to know the people at the top, right? So that you can get to the top too. But are they happy, right? Is that bringing them joy? And so there is this inner turmoil of so many people trying trying to fill that void and people do it with many different ways. So um breaking the law to try to get some money is is maybe I, I hate to say it but maybe one of the lesser ways of actually like you know trying to get that edge up on feeling like life is you're getting buried in life right it it and i love what you were saying in there and something so we're we're, we're trained to go after these things and i think the trap that we get into is you know, for I think for a lot of people, it could be the um, you know the six-figure mark, hitting that hundred k. When and and you know this is and I was guilty of this, but it was when I make a hundred thousand, I'm going to be happy. You hit that hundred thousand, and I was happy for a little bit, and then it fades, and it's like, well, well, why did that fade? Well, what happens when I hit two hundred thousand? Then I'm going to be happy, and it's always just that carrot on a stick. I, I really refer to it as um, running on a treadmill, trying to catch the horizon. Yeah, <laughs> it's just never get, when when we when we seek that inner fulfillment from things that are outside of us. You know, uh, whether it be money, whether it be materialistic things, even honestly in our relationships, if we're seeking things outside of ourselves and chasing, it's just never. It will never be enough. And, it's and that, always always a moving target, right? So <clears throat> if you're extrinsically in, extrinsically motivated, it's always a moving target. You're always chasing after something and you get that hit for a while, like, oh, yay. And then it's like, you know, you go back to your baseline. Um, Ram Dass talked about that as the, like the new car syndrome. Like when you get a new car and you're like, oh yes, it's fantastic. And it feels so good to drive it. And then that first squeak, right? That first squeak and it's like, oh no. And now it becomes a source of stress instead of like a source of joy. Like it's so temporary. It's, it's so temporary. There's a great story. I believe it was, you know, there's Tony Robbins was sitting in this room with a bunch of billionaires and, you know, one guy was worth, let's say, I think 10 billion and somebody else was worth 4 billion. So, I mean, there's, he's still very wealthy, but the other guy is, you know, <laughs> 2.5 times, yeah, two, you know, a, a multiple of two more. And the the $10 billion guy just bought a new jet. And the $4 billion guy also had a jet, but his jet was not nearly as cool as the $10 billion guy. And it became a source of stress. And he was just miserable. And Tony Robbins is telling the story of just watching this guy be absolutely miserable that his private jet isn't quite as cool as this other guy's. And I think that is just such a testimonial to how easy it is to get caught up in this stuff. Yeah. Like there's, there's no end to it. Like even if you had a billion dollars or somebody who has $2 billion and um, you know, it would be funny if it wasn't, if it wasn't causing so much personal suffering, right? Because, okay, maybe, maybe it's hard to feel sorry for the billionaires, but 
what about the guy who just made a hundred thousand and like now all of a sudden he's feeling like oh i'm still not good enough then like you know that's sad like that's sad because um when are we ever supposed to feel okay about ourselves so i love that so much of your message and we're going to get into that more has to do with your discovery of of self-worth but why don't we go to the next step, which was walk us through what happened when the FBI ultimately tracked you down. So that was that was actually October 1st, 2013. The FBI had tracked me for quite some time, but they didn't realize that I had started a new job and that I was now on my old job. I used to work out of my home. They didn't know that I had this new job and that I had driven from our home in Connecticut into New York City and I was in my office. So I, I park my car in the garage. I go up the 37 floors. I, I start unpacking my laptop bag for the day and I put my cell phone on the desk and I notice that I have an, uh, one, one missed call. And I said, well, that's weird. You know, the phone was on me the whole time. I didn't hear it ring. It's a, a private number with a voicemail. So I listened to the voicemail and it was the following. Mr. Stanlin, this is Special Agent McTiernan with the FBI. We are at your residence and have a warrant for your arrest. You need to call us and come home immediately or we will issue an APB with the federal marshals. That's, oh how, God. I, that's how I found out that I was being arrested by the FBI. It was... I mean, you could tell that I have that voicemail memorized. That is just so ingrained in my brain because of the the emotions that came with it. I, I My heart fell to my feet. I had trouble finding air. Uh, I thought that everybody in the office had heard. It, it sounds ridiculous, but I thought that that voicemail was-, was Everybody angry. knows. <laughs> I literally thought everybody knew. And I just was like, what do I, how do I get out of this? I'm, I'm two weeks into this new job. How do I leave when I just walked in the door? And I don't know, I really didn't remember that many people's names. Fortunately, it was about 8.45ish in the morning. So the office was only about half full. Uh, God. First you know, thing in the morning, had you even had your cup of coffee yet? I, I did have my cup of coffee. And you know, I mean, actually this is, this is kind of funny. I was very, in a sense, fortunate they usually come around 6 a.m. Oh. is my understanding. So I, for some reason they slept in or whatever it was, they they raided my house much later than they normally do that. Um, they were but, running late. <laughs> well, it could be, it could be. I, I later found out, and I'm, I don't want to fast forward, but it, I think it's relevant. After I was arrested, after I went through everything, the the officers told me, they're like, oh, by the way, you you know, we're in a government shutdown, right? I was like, yeah, <laughs> right. we are in a government shutdown. He goes, and the guy, he was so gleeful about it. He goes, just so you know, everybody here today arrested you with no pay. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> that's, that's exactly, I was kind of like, thank you. <laughs> okay. So maybe that's why the, uh, the late start, but it was, I mean, it was sheer terror. And to your point that, you know, when you're laughing and saying everybody knows, when I went to go get my car in the parking garage, you know, I told the guy that I'm going to be, you know, eight, nine hours, you know, and, and here I am 10 minutes later picking it back up. And I was like, he knows, everybody knows. I mean, it was just this scarlet letter of shame. Mm -hmm. and, and 
you know, I, I was in a sense very fortunate that I had that. It was about an hour drive um, to get home. And I was really lucky about that because I could I could call my father, let him know what's going on. I could secure representation. I don't have a criminal attorney on file, but I did own four homes. So I had a real estate attorney. So I called them up and said, do you, do you know anybody? And they're like, wow, do you know we actually have a white collar attorney who works out of our office, who rents space in our office? Synchronicity. Like, put me in touch with them. So I was able to secure representation. Um, but it was, it was the longest drive into sheer unknown terror because I didn't know what was going on. I called my wife. Uh, she didn't pick up for about six or seven rings. And those were like some of the most excruciating, excruciatingly long rings that I could ever imagine. And she, when she did pick up the, the pain and fear in her voice, she just said, she said, Craig, what's happening? And I, 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 I couldn't, I couldn't tell, I didn't even know what was going on, but I later found out, A, it's scary to have the FBI going through your house, but B, when the FBI comes, they come prepared. So when they knocked on the door, my wife obviously had no idea who it was. Our, she and our little Westie, you know, go to the door to, to greet whoever is there. Hello. <laughs> she, op she opens the door to uh, about 15 federal agents with um, assault rifles, pistols, and shotguns aimed at her face and her chest. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that's, that's what kind of overkill, guys. FBI, just saying. Anybody listening? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, you know, the it's funny most most people do have that reaction and i actually i defend the fbi because yes they did research on me and they you know they could see that i'm you know not a menacing guy they could see that i didn't own any guns but they don't know if i own a gun illegally they don't know when they come in they don't know what the person's state of mind is and if they're That's going true. to harm themselves or harm their family as a last ditch effort so I, I actually, I get it, but I will, I will say that I defend them for that because they just don't know what they're coming into. I mean, it wasn't like a violent crime that you were being arrested for. And so you'd think that their level of weaponry might come down a notch. Like, I understand maybe one guy needs to have a gun, but 15, like, that seems like a lot. It's, it's a small army. <laughs> I mean, it is, it is a small army. And so- did Go your ahead. wife know why they were coming? Did she have any idea that this was going on? No, she didn't know that they were coming. The she knew she knew that I was doing something. And you know, she would say, "Are you sure this is okay?" And I would just wave her off and say, "It's fine. Stop asking me." And I knew what I was doing was wrong. And I I blatantly lied to her and I lied to her every single time that she asked. And I, I mean, I feel absolutely terrible about that. And it was, you know, quite honestly, I was too, I was too afraid to admit the truth. You know, I really was, I knew what I was doing was wrong and I was too afraid to admit it. Yeah, that's really hard. I mean, and you obviously loved her very much. And so it just sounds like you got caught up in all of this, in all of this, like, I'm going to provide for our family. This is going to be okay. And, and I'm sure everybody tells themselves, oh, I'm not going to get caught or it's not that big of a deal um, until it happens. Then you're like, oh, what do I do now? Right. It's, it's you're, you nailed it on the head in the sense of, you know, I did at first, it was very, when I first 
did it. You know, my, my crime was a series of choices and it involved me hitting the enter button on my laptop, hitting the, the mouse to, to, you know, perpetuate the fraud. And the first time I did it, my, my heart told me that uh, this was not the way to go, that this was wrong, don't do it. And I ignored that voice over and over again. And I didn't, I didn't at that time, I, it's so weird to say, but I didn't know it was illegal. And it wasn't, I knew it wasn't right, but I didn't know what law it would fall under. And I didn't yeah. see it as being illegal because I didn't know what law it fell under. However, when I did a quick calculation in my head where I realized that the fraud had exceeded the million dollar mark, my heart squeezed on itself like it was having a heart attack. And it was like, this this now is something really, and you you, like I said, you nailed it. It was so big and so caught up and it and it hurt but I didn't stop and I didn't know how to stop. And it was just, you know, looking at it now with hindsight, it's so easy to look at it, but it was just, you know, it's like, what was I thinking? And it just was everything that you said, you know, it was like, I'm not going to get caught. It's okay. It'll be all right. You know, I mean, even when I was driving home going into that, there was part of me that was saying, I'll sit down with them and we'll just talk this out. That's how in denial I was. The you know you just don't when the FBI comes you do not just talk it out. It's not something yeah. where you have you know tea tea and crackers and you know come to a, a a conclusion at the end of it and be like oh Mr. Stanlin our apologies we'll leave your home now you know it, it just that's how delusional I was. Yeah. Well, I mean, how could anybody process that? And and I think we tell ourselves little white lies all the time because, or we say well. I'm sure this isn't right, but I don't know how wrong it is, so I'm not going to find out how wrong it is, right? Um, this was obviously on a on a bigger scale, and um, so after you got arrested, you actually pled guilty to one count of mail fraud. Is that right? I, I did um, because I was, and it was, you know, I I still was in that denial stage. So before the guilty plea, when I was with my attorney, you know, I'm going through the criminal complaint. And there were some there were some small errors in there, um, and you know I and I got stuck on those, and I said you know hey this isn't right, well this isn't right, um, you know we should fight this. And my attorney was like, doesn't make a difference. Like you are, you know I'm sorry, but you're guilty, and it just yeah. you know it took me a little while to really admit that, and that was one of the hardest things. So many hard things going through this, but one of the hardest things was going into that courtroom. And, you know, how does the defendant plea guilty your honor that I mean, those those that short sentence is one of the hardest things to to say. There was more shame attached to that, right? So much from the moment of the arrest, it was just a shame spiral. And that just added to it. It really it really did. I feel like regret makes sense. Like, gee, I wish I had made a different choice, but shame just destroys you from the inside out, right? Shame is just poison to your mind and body. It, it, shame is the worst, I believe, the worst emotion that we as humans can experience. It is debilitating. It tells us that we are alone. It tells us that we are no good as a human being, that we are not worthy, that we are not enough, that we are... Scum, you know, we're barely even. Scum. I mean, I, I, I remember very vividly after I was in prison, just saying, 
you know, I'm not worthy of anything, including love, including life. And, you know, I mean, it was just, and that was pure shame. And that's how powerful shame is. I think that's what hell is. So I don't actually believe in heaven and hell. Although since my dad died, where he is feels a lot like heaven. So I use that word now, interestingly. But I think hell is something that we make for ourselves. And that to me sounds exactly like hell. It, I, I, I love the fact that you just drew that parallel. Um, I, I called it purgatory. I, I called it purgatory because it felt like um, to me, I kept, I referred to from the moment of the arrest um, till actually going to prison, that's about 10 months in between getting arrested and actually reporting to prison is about 10 months, 10 months of pure uncertainty of what's going to happen. So um, were you, were you at home during that time? Were you in jail? Where were you for those 10 months? I was really fortunate. Uh, my father and wife posted a hundred thousand dollar bail. So I was out and I was home and, you know, trying to, trying to put together a life and trying to figure out a way to, um, keep a roof over her head because you know without my without my money she had just started a new vintage furniture business and it was like brand spanking new so it was just mm -hmm. like we have to get this thing off the ground and running asap just to to keep food and a roof and you know just that stress and and honestly i didn't know for the first several months i didn't know what kind of prison i was going to go to you know i just thought there was the one kind of prison so for about four or five months, I, I, I literally thought I was going to get raped and beaten every single day because I am, I'm five foot four at the time I weighed 140 pounds. I'm not a large individual. And I was certain that I was going to just experience that every single day. I didn't, I didn't know, you know, what kind of prison I would be going to. And it was just that, that dark cloud of just uncertainty compounded with shame. It just, it weighs on the soul. You know, I can't say that I'm too familiar with the different types of prisons either. So they put you into a minimum security facility. Is that right? I was, I was actually, it's called a camp. It's a, it's a still, you know, it's in the Sounds federal. Sounds like fun. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, well, I, you know, here, here's, here's a very interesting thing. The prison I went to, I will never, ever complain about it because I was extremely lucky to go where I went. We had. We had a gym, although it was a very crappy gym. And in the wintertime, we had ice on the floor because it would leak. And we were up in upstate New York. So there would, there would be ice on the floor. Uh, so you had to watch your step. And it was, I mean, you'd be wearing five different jackets, multiple gloves just to work out. But we had a gym. We had a wall that we could use for paddle ball. Um, you know, it was, it was actually pretty. You know, I'll say they they landscaped it and they do that for the visitors. So when the visitors come, it looks like they're seeing their loved ones in a nice environment. You know, I was able to eat lunch and dinner, weather permitting, outside of picnic tables. You know, the, the prison itself was safe. It was nice. Um, it's it's just the the loss of freedom and the mental prison that I put myself in. And then you know, above above the camp level, then you go to minimum security, and then you're going to be more more with the, you know, you'll start dealing with the child molesters, the gang members, um, you know, uh, violent drug offenders. And then you go to a medium security facility where you're going to have your murderers and your rapists, and you go up all the way to a penitentiary to high security. And those, I mean, are the, the worst, really, offenders.
What's worse than murderers and rapists? I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> it's I guess these the serial ones, the you know, it's just the the hardcore, hardcore. You know, I mean, I know. I think it's called the ADX, which is out in California, and I think that's you know where the Unabomber is, where Timothy McVeigh and like that ilk. Okay. Wow. Well, that was an interesting education. So, um, did they have you in a cell then? Was it a room? Like what, what were your accommodations like? It was, they looked like cubicles in an office. So it had no, it had no door. It wasn't a cell. The, they were cinder block walls that were about five feet high or so. And I would say they measured about eight by 13 and it was um, a bunk bed, so I had a I had a bunkie. We each had a very small footlocker. Had uh, a couple hooks on the walls where we could hang our things. Uh, we had these little plastic stools that looked like mushrooms, and you know it was um, it was very sanitary, very very purposeful. Couldn't decorate it with anything to to personalize it. It was just very very cold. Um, but not having a cell door, huge huge yeah. thing. Because when I first when I first got to prison when I had to check in, most camps are next door to a higher security facility. So my camp was next to a medium security facility. I actually had to check in at the medium security. So I was in the catacombs of this, 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 this frightening facility. I mean, just absolutely scary. And they did, uh, it was just for a short time period, but I was locked in a cell when I was there. And that's just it's really hard to describe the sound of a prison cell closing, prison cell door closing behind you is really, it's the finality of it. The visceralness and rawness of it is just, it, it shoots right through you. I mean, that sounds terrifying. And, you know, I'd like to say that you going into federal prison was rock bottom, but sadly you describe your rock bottom as actually something that happened while you were there which was a recurring vision that haunted you for four months. Um, it's so painful to hear this, but I think it's important for people to know where you're coming from. Yeah. And I, and I, I like to share the story and I'd like to rewind just a little bit. It was, so here I am in prison, the voice that told me not to do it. I ignored it over and over again. And all those choices that I made, my fraud went on for about 10 months. So I probably made a couple thousand choices. And every single time that I made those choices, the voice said, don't do it. I ignored it every single time. By the time I got into prison, I ignored that voice for so long that it just, it disappeared. And it's, that's a really scary feeling to not have that, that inner voice. I could feel my heart just completely close and, and lock up. So I was, I was feeling that and the, and the shame that goes along with that. I lied to my wife and like I said, told her what I was doing was okay. On December 22nd, she told me that she was leaving me and I was convinced. So, so I think the, the, the greatest experience of being a human on this planet and why we're here is to love and to be loved. And I think that is, since the pinnacle of the human experience and because of all that shame and the pain that I had caused her, I truly believed that I destroyed the greatest gift that we have of being alive, love. So I had that on top of everything else. And then there was a third thing that happened when I was in prison, even with all that shame, even with all that feeling, 
there was this one moment outside. It was uh, unseasonably warm in November. And I, there's no other way to describe it other than a direct download from the universe of what's important in life. And it was just friends, family, connection, um, courage, gratitude, joy, all of these just the all of these beautiful intrinsic things that do not cost a penny. They all I felt it. I felt what was important. And it was like, and I I I I not a religious guy, but I looked up at the sky and I said, thank you, thank you, thank you. I will not F this up. But then I realized that I was in prison and I still had all that shame and I didn't feel worthy of that download. So now I know the secret to life and what's important, but I'm not worthy of it. I destroyed the greatest gift that we have as humans. All of that culminated into, into this vision that first started when I started to meditate. I started meditating in prison. I always wanted to, but I, I um, always said I didn't have time. It's really not an issue in prison. There's there's an abundance of time. So I started my practice, and it was it was good in the beginning. But then, with the culmination of those those three things, my my monkey mind just showed me this vision of what my own suicide would look like. And at first, I just pushed it aside. I said, no, no, that's, you know, whatever. Don't, don't think about that. And then the monkey played it again and then played it again and played it again. And it was, it was me walking into one of the basements and in, in one of the homes that I own. And I'm wearing a black hood over my head. And even though I'm wearing that hood, I, I know it's me. I can just feel my resignation. My shoulders are rounded and it's just, the weight of the world is on me. And I, I sit in this wooden chair that's next to this window that's just covered in filth. And all of a sudden I pull out this gun and I have no idea where it was hidden. And I, I put the gun in my mouth and to this day telling you right now, I can taste the linen of that hood and I can feel the cold steel of the barrel in my mouth. And I pull the trigger. And I tell you, I can feel the bullet exit through the back of my skull. And I'm watching this movie play and I can actually see fragments of my, of my skull and my brain on the wall behind me, just slowly dripping down and my body just falls forward. That vision played every second of every single day for four months straight. It was, it, it was driving me absolutely insane to the point where when I went to sleep at night, I would beg, I would beg. It's funny, I just said I wasn't a religious guy, but I was praying. I said, please, please God, kill me in my sleep. Please make it stop. Please make it effing stop, please. And every single morning I woke up, I was disappointed when I saw the light of a new day and the vision started up again. And I just couldn't, I could not shake it. And that's, when I began to plan how I was going to kill myself. That is tr truly horrific. And thank you for sharing something so personal. It sounds like you were at a choice point that if you're going to continue your life, you had to open your heart to yourself. And like you said, connection is everything. And you said that you had destroyed 
the gift of life, of love. But I would argue that you didn't because love isn't from one person to another. Love is what radiates out of you. And it has to be for yourself. It can be for life. It can be for the morning. It can be for a really good cup of coffee. You know, like love is something that we radiate. It's an energy. So you may have damaged a relationship with someone that you loved, but she still has love in her heart and you still have love. And you can only experience what you open yourself to. I feel like we're fish in an ocean, an ocean of divine love, and we don't know what the ocean is. But if we just opened ourselves to it, we would find that we're actually surrounded by the kind of nourishment that would light up, light us up for a million lifetimes. So for you to have to get to that point is tragic. And you could have made a different choice. But there was something in you that obviously wanted to live. There was a part of you that remembered that you are worthy. And thank God that you did. Because you can get that message out to us. That you are already worthy. You just have to open to it. Connection is everything. And you didn't have that. You didn't have that because you were in federal prison. You didn't have that because you lost a relationship with the woman you thought you were going to spend the rest of your life with. You didn't have that because you had nobody to talk to. I think that would have killed me, right? You didn't feel like you could tell anybody that you're living your suicide over and over again every single day and you couldn't get it out you couldn't tell anybody because you were afraid they would put you in isolation and the only thing worse than where you were was isolation that's that's exactly right if you mention suicide in prison they lock you in solitary so i couldn't mention it on the phone i couldn't mention it in emails i couldn't tell i had some of the best friends that i could imagine in prison they were some great great guys I couldn't tell them because out of concern, maybe they would tell a guard and then I find myself in solitary. So I couldn't, I, I couldn't tell anybody. And that connection came in just one of the most beautiful ways that it could have possibly arrived. It was, it was a Wednesday afternoon and I checked my email and uh, I get an email from my best friend, Sean of 30 plus years, you know, the guy that just like, you know, your best friend that you could tell anything to that just, just, he would, <laughs> exactly. I mean, just, you know, this incredible human being, and he emails me and says, Hey man, can I come, can I come this weekend for a visit? I was like, yes, you can. Visits aren't monitored. So I knew I could tell Sean things are not good. I could tell him this vision. I could, I could get that connection. I could get this thing out of me because the more you bottle something like that up, the more critical mass it actually gains. The more that we trap it, it, it just becomes stronger and bigger. So I, I knew I could tell Sean, I knew I could get it out. It's Wednesday to Saturday. It takes forever for him to get here to, you know, to prison. I was like, why can't time move any faster? But he, he comes, he gets some food from the vending machine. We sit down in our really crappy seats and I'm like, this is it, man. I get to I get to get this out of me. And before I can utter a word, Sean just starts speaking and his life is just a mess. He's getting a divorce. He's got work issues. He's got money issues. 
he there's there's a there's a sadness in Sean's voice and in his eyes that I've never seen in 30 plus years of friendship and it really hurt to see it but it was at that moment that something dawned on me I had value as a human being in being just a friend and nothing else Sean didn't come all the way to prison to to you know to see my things and and who I thought I was my cars and my watches and my fancy dinners he came because he needed his best friend and he he made that 2 hour drive when his brother who he's got a really great relationship with um lived a couple houses away and he could have just gone to him but he needed his friend it was at that moment that I realized I had that I had worth and that I had value outside of everything I had always thought made me worthy and then that was that was the turning point the day the day that i was arrested was the day that my life changed and then the second uh, day that my life changed was Sean's visit that's so beautiful and he didn't even know what he was doing right he came to you cuz he needed you he chose you to confide in he he chose me and the craziest thing about all this is i never even told him at that time in that visit i didn't even tell him because i didn't even i didn't have to and the vision stopped and the next the next morning i wasn't disappointed when i saw the light of a new day i was still in prison and i was still miserable but i wasn't i wasn't pissed that it was a new day and i wasn't fearful of that vision coming back and it really it was just i, I really believe that the universe sent me shawn um I really do believe that and I also believe the universe to reinforce its message sent my mom and my aunt the very next weekend. Wow. Yeah, and I think that was just a I don't think the universe would actually talk this way, but this is the funny way that I put it. Hey dummy, here's a reminder. Your mom and aunt are coming. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, no. believe, I don't believe the universe would actually use that language, but yeah. It's kind of what yeah. it felt like at the time. There's a lot of funny memes online of like spirit guides and guardian angels of like, I sent you like five messages and three signs. And why, like, why aren't you getting like, they're so frustrated with us. I think that's, I think that's pretty funny. Yeah. But, oh, wow. Thank God for Sean. Like, um, you know, and it wasn't just him because you opened to it. You could have just plowed ahead with what you wanted to do and not paid attention. But there was something in you. There was a space for opening that you noticed how he was feeling. You noticed the difficulty he was going through and changed and changed direction. It's, it's so funny. I've never really even put that together that I was just open to that it really was my friend is hurting and he needs me and, and i i you know i it just everything just shed at that point it you know it really it really did it was like my Sean needs me how can i help i don't even think that i well i think i helped a lot but i don't i'm not even sure if i had any advice i think i just listened i think i just you know i think that's all i did and that's a lot of times that's all we need it's just some yeah. to be seen and to be heard Mm -hmm. Now, you said that shame is a prison cell and vulnerability is the key. 
And I love that quote. I think that was from your TED Talk. And it makes me think of Brene Brown, who is famous for talking about vulnerability. She has so many great quotes on that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one here. Vulnerability is not about fear and grief and disappointment. It is the birthplace of everything we're hungry for. I love that. And it's, it's so true. And I know... So when I when I after Sean's visit after my mom and aunt visit uh, visited it was it was like I have to give meaning to the suffering I have to give meaning to the suffering that I caused to my wife and to my family I still was very much struggling with self worth and shame but I knew I I knew I had to give some meaning to the suffering I had gone through but I wasn't quite at the point of allowing myself that I, I knew it was there but I wasn't really comfortable with doing it for me yet um, and. I I knew that there was going to be just so much. I could feel the weight of the of the stigma of being a federally convicted felon for the remainder of my life. That title doesn't go away. There's no there's no expiration date on that. You know, I will have that till the day that I die. And I knew that if I didn't if I didn't do something about that, if I didn't own my story, my story would own me for the remainder of my life. And that would turn into, I believe, into just regret and bitterness. And I would just be, I'd just be a cranky old man, you know, of just living a life of regret. And I, I had to own my story. And the way that I own my story is by having these conversations and being open and being vulnerable. And, you know, it's not... It's not the easiest thing to 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 tell the story of that vision and planning to kill myself. Um, but but I feel that because I went through it and I am where I am now, that I have an obligation to. Because there's somebody out there who feels right now how I once felt, and I feel that I have an obligation, and that that's that vulnerability, and that's that everything that we're hungry for that Brene Brown said mm -hmm. is is on the other side of that vulnerability and she couldn't be she couldn't be more right i you know i contend that our most personal stories are also the most universal so that description of your darkest moment so many people have felt that maybe not for 4 months straight but maybe they had a dark night of the soul you know being human isn't easy and and we go through a lot and we have to keep finding our way back to ourselves so Thank you for being vulnerable and for showing us how valuable it is and how, you know, if you didn't tell your story, you'd either be hiding it or running from it for the rest of your life. But when you own it, like you said, it doesn't control you. It, it doesn't control me. And I'll give an interesting, an interesting example of that is when, when I first got out of prison and, you know, I was starting to, starting to date. And, you know, people would ask me, oh, so what's your backstory? Or what, you know, I mean, very common things on a first date. And I would tell them because I was like, I'm not going to hide from it. But I was still at the point of being so consumed by shame that when I delivered the news, I didn't get judged too poorly by a lot of people, but there was an energy behind it. There was a, there was a feeling behind it. Now, when I go on dates and I share the same news, I, I give the, it's the same words. I'm a federally convicted felon and I'll tell the story. 
but the energy behind it is different. And I no longer am judged poorly because I no longer judge myself. So I don't open up the door for others to judge me. It's not to say that people aren't. There are some people who are listening, you know, they're going to listen to this and say, once a criminal, always a criminal. And that's <laughs> it, it. I know that there's people out there that do think that um, one of my one of my dearest friends, her mom does not like the fact that I am, uh, you know, a criminal. And she, sure. she, she's getting used to the idea that I'm really good friends with her daughter, but she really does not, she doesn't, she doesn't like it. But that, you know, when, when we, I think when we really, when we judge others, um, we're judging ourselves. We're, we're really highlighting something about ourselves that we don't like. And I think it's, you know, it's the, it's the energy behind the words and how we approach it and not judging ourselves, like I said, so other people can't judge us. Yeah. And what other people think of us is none of our business. But um, probably in those early dates, they were sensing your discomfort, right? If you're like, oh, yeah, I did this. And uh, and like, they're like, oh, like, something doesn't feel right here. But now you're like, like, this was a springboard for me. Like, this was this is my truth. This is what happened. And like, I have climbed up from that. I have made different choices. I have learned from that. And, and you know, there's there's a lot of stories like that. Um, not all as poignant as yours, but, um, where, you know, it's like, let's say someone lost a hundred pounds or something and they could be really ashamed, like, Ooh, you know, I had a hundred pounds to lose, or they could be like, I lost a hundred pounds and I'm in the best shape of my life. Right. It's like, we have to own our stories of, you know, where, where we started from and we can always start over. There's always another point. And, and because I think what we go through that feels so personal is so universal. When we share those stories, we have that connection and we're helping others. And, and I, I think sharing our stories is absolutely one of the most important things that we can do because like I was saying before, shame, shame lives and breathes in the dark and it tells us that we're alone and that we're the only ones that feel how we feel right now. And when we share our stories, it gives other permission, it gives others permission to share their stories and they realize that they're not alone. So that shame that has been imprisoning them, like, wait a second, I'm not alone. Then maybe, you know, very very few people can relate to the actual prison experience that I went through. But when I say that I was consumed by shame, everybody knows what that feels like. Everybody so, knows. Our paths, yeah, our paths are, are all unique, but the emotions behind them, same with happiness and same with anger. You know, if I say that I'm really pissed off, you know what that means. If I say yeah. that I'm consumed by shame, you know what, you, you can feel that in your pit of your stomach and your heart, maybe a little bit of flush on your cheeks, you know, I mean, you can like, you just know, and that's where we connect is on the emotions. It's the, and our stories are just the, the vessels to get to that. Yeah. Beautiful. I love that. Now, somewhere along your path, you came across the books of Dr. Wayne Dyer. Now, obviously I'm a huge Wayne Dyer fan. That's how I started the podcast. So can you tell us how you first discovered him? So I had right out of Right out of prison, I was really lucky to get a job at a gym. Um, and because it's hard for a formerly incarcerated person to, to find employment. And there's a court order barring me from my old industry. Uh, not that anybody would touch me with a 10-foot pole anyway. So here I am working at this gym in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I'm 
making $12 an hour, working behind the front desk, thrilled to have this job. And one of the one of the trainers, her name is Jill. Jill and I start becoming really close. She's one of the first people that I shared my story with. Um, you know, we got really close and two of us were the only one in the gym one day. And I said, you know, I, I want to share something with you. And we sat down, we sat on the benches, you know, we had the, the gym was empty and we had two, two flat benches that we, we sat on and she just listened to me. She didn't judge me. And I felt really safe. And our, our friendship really grew from, from that moment. And I had, I had decided to conquer my fear of public speaking. So I joined Toastmasters and I invited Jill to come see me speak, to deliver a speech at one of the Toastmasters meetings. The day after that meeting, we're sitting behind the front desk and she says, I just want to tell you, you know, how great you really were. And she goes, do you know Wayne Dyer? I said, well, I've heard the name. I said, you know, the Aronia Zones sells in excess of 100 million copies or whatever ridiculous amount that book has sold. I said, I know the name. And she said, you know, go, go home and YouTube him tonight. She's like, jump into that. Just YouTube, watch one thing, just do it for me. And just watch one thing. One thing just turned into, I, I can't thank her enough because I really went down the, the, the Wayne Dyer YouTube rabbit hole of just <laughs> watching I was like, I mean, I, you know, I'd finished one and I'm just hungry for the next one. And just, you know, and I started, I, I really jumped into his world and, you know, it was when, when you, when we were just talking about the energies and how we have different energies that we bring to, you know, the, the women were picking up that something wasn't quite right. Well, it made me think of one of actually my favorite Wayne Dyer quote, um, you know, if we change the way that we look at things, the things we look at change. And that just really, yeah. when you were saying that, it really brought me to that. So, you know, Wayne Dyer is, to me, one of those guys, I, I really, I'm a huge, I'm a huge YouTuber of his. Like, I don't just watch one video once. They resonate so much that I feel a calling to them and I'll watch it over and over again. I've watched the, I believe it was when he was at salesforce.com, when he was sitting in the, um, he was sitting in the chair. He had tweaked his back and they had to bring a chair on stage. Which was unusual. He was usually on his feet. Yeah. Usually on his feet. I mean, that was a strange thing. And I've watched that one 10 to 12 times. I've watched the one where he discussed the Tao Te Ching. I've watched that at least a dozen times. Like for me, when something really resonates, and I do the same thing with books, I immerse myself in them. I just don't want to read it once and say, okay, I've got it. <laughs> it's, it's really about an immersion. And, you know, I go through, I go through, it's, in, I go through my phases with, with different people. And Wayne is one of the, one of the consistents where when I get that urge, I'm boom right there and just consuming, consuming his content. And I think, I think what's so, I think what's so powerful is so much of the stuff that he, you know, he started in the seventies and he went for, I mean, obviously a very long time. The words are just timeless. And I think that's, what's so important. And I think him as a speaker, thinking about that salesforce.com one, where he was sitting in the chair, he still had this sense. There's a sense of awe and power in watching him sitting in a chair. He's still commanding, I'm pretty sure that they were in some form of stadium for that. 
And he had that stadium. He had every single person in that stadium sitting in that chair, just listening to every single word that he said. And I think that's just a testament to the wisdom and the energy that he puts behind what he says. His live lectures are by far my favorite. And whenever people are new to Wayne Dyer and they're like, what's a good book to start with? I'm like, start with his live lectures. Like go find a YouTube video or, you know, go on Audible or something because there's just this energy that he brings to it. And knowing what I know about him now, he was absolutely in the zone when he was in front of an audience. And that was, you know, that was no coincidence. He fed off that energy, but he was so inspired. And it's like he was bringing through those messages for the benefit of everybody. He was a conduit. You know, he used to say, God builds all the bridges and writes all the books. And later in his life, when he was doing all his writing at, you know, three o'clock in the morning, and he would call it channeled writing. And he's like, you know, I can't explain it. It's just, it's just coming through me. And I, you could see him get excited about things, you know, like he'd be talking about something and he starts telling something and then it's like, you know, his hands are up in the air and he's all excited. But, you know, he was an amazing speaker. And when I researched his life, um, part of that was also what he learned from being in college. Interestingly, by watching his professors who were not engaging to the audience. And he's like, they have this captive, they have this captive audience. These students are stuck here, right, for the duration of the lecture. And like, they're just wasting it. Nobody's interested. People are bar barely paying attention. And, you know, he wanted to introduce humor and he wanted to make it exciting. And so he had these years of, of being a professor at St. John's University in New York. And then when he wrote his first book for the public and started going on all these talk shows and everything, it's like he kind of already had this practiced speaking style. And he was um, he was a counselor as well. But there, I mean, that was just his zone. Like he talks about being in the zone when he would play tennis. But um, when he was on stage, like that was it. And I've heard from people who put together some of these lecture series that, you know, there were times that he was having a lot of pain with his neck and his back. He was having issues with that. And like sometimes they're like, are you going to be okay? He's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll be fine. And then when it came to go on stage, it was like he felt no pain. You know, it's like he was on this high and he he was an amazing conduit. So I I love hearing that you found him on YouTube and just went down the rabbit hole. I did. I'm so thankful to Jill for for bringing that up to me. And she's just like, I really do it for me. And I think it's going to I think it's going to resonate with you. She's like, I really do. And she couldn't have been more right. And as far as giving talks, I've heard that before. I've heard of people like who didn't know about Wayne Dyer and somebody said, oh, you should look at this guy because he's got a nice speaking style, right? Um, so probably the people at Toastmasters are are chatting about the late, great Dr. Dyer. He, he I mean, from a technical standpoint, he's got an amazing style. It's just a, yeah. and it's that flow. It's the conduit. It's when you are, when the words just flow through, you know, we can, we in the audience can just see that and just sense it. Um, if a speech is memorized, we can tell that too. And it doesn't yeah. quite have the same zing to it. But when it, man, man, when that's coming from, that's coming intrinsically and just flowing through and it's just the vessel for the words, oh, it, it's, yeah. it's mesmerizing.
he brought some people onto the stage like Anita Morjani and he told her, you know, you're going to be fine. Like just speak from the heart. And that was always his advice. He used to do a lot of preparation, probably like he did for lectures of all these detailed notes and everything. And at some point he kind of abandoned that and, you know, he'd do his preparation, I'm sure, but then he would come out and like, it would just speak from the heart and oh, man, that takes a lot of confidence to come out without, without notes. And he would also, I mean, some of those, some of those lectures are, I mean, they're in excess of an hour speaking from the heart for over an hour and sh straight through, not missing a beat, keeping everybody on the edge of their seat. I mean, that's, that's a gift. That's a real, real gift. He, he was famously go over, like they give it, they give him an hour and he'd talk for two and it's like, uh, we got to close it out, Wayne. Oh, yeah. Once he got going, that was it. So who are some of the other authors in this genre that have inspired you? So I've got, so, well, Wayne, Wayne Dyer inspired me to read um, Lao Tzu, Tao Te Ching. Uh, I have it on my desk right now. I read a couple passages out of that every morning. Um, I'm also a huge fan of the Bhagavad Gita. I think that is just a beautiful, beautiful, and just the lessons in that. It takes me a little bit to get through it and takes me a little bit to, I, I'm not going to pretend that I understand it all that well, but it's, the parts that I do are, are powerful. Um, I love, you know, it's funny, I'm going very old school right now, but I think some of these are the foundation for everything that we, we now learn. I think all the, I think all the world's wisdom was basically written thousands of years ago, and we are all just kind of recycling it through our own experiences. And so I'm a huge also fan of um, Marcus Aurelius, Meditations. Uh, Stoic philosophy has been a huge influence to me. Going up a little bit more modern, all the way to 1903, I'll go on, um, As a Man Thinketh, James Allen is a uh, has been absolutely huge for me. Um, my, my friend, Kamal Ravikant, um, he has a boy, he's got two, well, he's got three books, but two of them really, really changed the trajectory of my life. Um, it's love yourself like your life depends upon it and live your truth. Fantastic titles. Oh, they're just, they're, and they're, they're so beautifully written and just so powerful. Uh, James Altucher uh, has been a huge, he's a blogger, former hedge fund manager, best-selling author, um, Hema Chodron. I think anything written by Pema Chodron is just unbelievable in its in its simplicity and its wisdom. And Sherry Huber is also another one. Uh, the Fear Book. Are you familiar with the Fear Book? I'm not. Oh, it is. It the Fear Book is all about obviously fear, and it's a very heavy topic. She writes it. She's got these little. It's almost written like a cartoon. I mean, she's got little doodles in it. She's got the font that she uses is kind of like a little kid's font and it looks kind of fun and it's a very simple read, but what, what she's actually saying in it is so deep and so powerful when it comes to fear and our egos and how fear operates. It's just like, it, don't let the text fool you. What is actually in there is very powerful and very deep. But off the top of my head, I think those are... Um, I know I'm missing some, oh, Stephen Pressfield. Stephen Pressfield, The War of Art and Turning Pro um, also. Just, yeah. I'm, I'm an great, great references. And there will always be more, right? 
always be more. I know I'm missing some. I'm gonna we'll we'll get off this podcast and I'm gonna go. Oh my god, I forgot the I forgot one of the biggest ones. Well, come into the group and and share a list of of your favorite reads. I know people are always looking for great inspiration, and um, you know Wayne Dyer was famous for reading um so many books and and synthesizing that information and bringing it to us. So um, very much in support of all the different authors and ancient wisdom from around the world. I love it. Now you are currently working on getting your memoir published titled The Blank Canvas. How's that going? It is going really, really well. And I'm going to jump into that in a second. I did just remember one of the books that I I can't (laughs) believe because it's actually, it's, this was a huge Reddit first in prison, and it was a, it was it was a game changer. Um, Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl. Oh yeah, oh, uh, that's that is, a classic. That's just so powerful in its shift of perspective. I'm happy that I remembered that one because that is great one. One yeah, that is one of the most important books that I've ever read. Um, in regards to my book, it is it's going really well. I started writing it in prison five years ago. It's been a five year eight draft process and it is ready to be published so i am i'm in the middle of a kickstarter campaign right now it's going to end on september 4th and i'm raising funds to professionally self-publish it so the cover design interior design manuscript evaluation the copy editing the proof editing getting it onto amazon and barnes and noble getting it copyrighted the isbn everything it's getting all that stuff so i'm i'm i couldn't i couldn't be more thrilled to be at this point with it it was can I share a story about when I first started writing it? I think is really the, yeah. the motivation behind it. So when I when I started writing it in prison, you know, I it it was I was writing about the arrest. I was writing about my wife leaving me, and these things had only just occurred. And trying to get them on paper was really painful. It really it really hurt. And I, I used to write in the in the prison library and. I remember one day I'm sitting in the library and I just, I threw my pen down. I just threw it in disgust. I said, why am I doing this? I'm already in prison. I'm, this is torture enough. Why am I doing this to myself? Well, remember I said that that voice had disappeared? Well, the voice came back and I knew I had to, I knew I had to write the answer down. So I flipped my journal to an open page and I wrote the answer down. And that answer was to help one person. And I flipped back to what I was writing and the pain wasn't so bad. And that was, that was the impetus. And that was the driving force that kept me through the five years and eight drafts is to help that one person. And, you know, I really, I really think it has the power to do that. And I really wanted to reach that one person who does feel right now how I used to feel. That's a great motivation. And I'm sure that people are going to be moved by your story. And when your book is out, I'm sure people are going to love reading that as well. So I look forward to that coming out. So next year, we're looking at release? Early next year. Um, that is knock on wood, everything goes well with the campaign to to raise the funds. And I will say, even, even if the campaign's not a success, this thing is getting published. I want it to get out there. I will figure it out. So I'm targeting... I'm thinking around anywhere from January to March of 2021. You know, that's going to be, that's my target. Well, please share a link for that in the Wayne Dyer Wisdom community when that is finished so we can know when it's ready. Now, what's the best way for people to reach you? 
can go to my website, craigstanland.com. And then I also am on Instagram every single day. And that is Craig underscore Stanland. And then also I post stuff on the, the Wayne Dyer fan, uh, the, 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 the Wayne Dyer page. I put up stuff once, twice a week. I'm hoping to start putting up a little bit more. Um, and that's, I mean, that's how we got connected. Yeah, great. Good stuff. Very inspiring. And that is how I found you and reached out and said, you've got a great story. You got to come on the podcast. So here we are. So Craig, thank you so much for sharing your very personal and incredible story of reinvention. I know that you're going to touch a lot of hearts today. And that was your mission. So well done. Nadia, thank you so much for having me on. And also thank you for creating the page in the first place, giving people a place to go to to post the things that people post that keep every keep all of us going and to get to know the work of Dr. Wayne Dyer even better. And also thank you for creating this podcast and having this platform for people to come on and share their stories. So I just want to acknowledge you and thank you for that. Well, thank you so much. It's been a real passion project. And um, this is really coming from not only my love for Dr. Dyer and the, the gratitude I have for the impact he had on my life, but everybody has a story to tell. And there's so many amazing stories. And I wanted to find a way to connect with um, some of the people in our group. Our group is getting really big now. And um, have this opportunity to talk to people like you is making it all worth it. So. It's an honor. That's incredible. And the honor is mine as well. So thank you. I would like to leave our listeners with this final thought, a quote from Craig Stanland. Our greatest adversities do not have to be the end. In fact, they can be our greatest beginnings and our greatest teachers. For all our listeners, thank you for following Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life and telling your friends about it. You can reach Craig and find out more about his coaching services and his upcoming book at www.craigstanland.com, S-T-A-N-L-A-N-D. To learn more about this podcast, please visit NadiaDelacruz.com. And until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Namaste. Namaste.